The following contains situations and circumstances that are relatable to all women, but are still uncomfortable and sometimes quite awful. We don't pull any punches. Listener discretion is advised. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change Turn the ship another way Feel it in the darkness We're sailing right into those jagged cliffs Yeah Some say we've always been insane Hey, life's a foolish game Life's a foolish game Much has been made, and I'll just go ahead and say it, overblown, about women in the workplace. Some depictions make it seem like cat fights and petty squabbles are inevitable proof of our inferiority. But is this fair? What if what is discounted as hormone-driven office hysteria is merely the product of differing personality types trying to hash out a working relationship? Welcome to Frenemies, a Toil and Trouble Media original. On this show, we examine notable women and the rivalries that help define them. Today, two professional powerhouses struggle for space under the spotlight of daytime television. It's the story of Rosie O'Donnell and Whoopi Goldberg. Rosie O'Donnell was born on March 21, 1962, in Comic, New York, third of five children. Although the family was strongly influenced by Patriarch Edward, an Irish immigrant, The heart of the family rested with their mother, Roseanne, Rosie's namesake. While there is much debate as to what it means to be raised Irish Catholic, especially amongst Irish Catholics, Edward worked hard to instill a sense of discipline and order in his household. No doubt his childhood environment had much to do with it. Growing up in Belfast at the height of the Troubles, he was surrounded by violence and political unrest. It was a terrible time in Irish history. Between the bloodshed during and after the Irish War of Independence, which split the country between British and independent Irish rule and North and South Ireland, unfathomable atrocities from both sides of the border became commonplace. Families like Edwards ate breakfast while reading news of the McMahon killings, the Arnon Street killings, and the IRA's Northern Offensive a consequence of the last resulting in over a 100 Catholic families being driven out of Belfast by force. There's not a lot of information to suggest Edward talked about it with his children. Not many trauma survivors do. He seems to have kept his nose in his work and supported his family as an electrical engineer designing satellite cameras. The job of raising the children, he left up to his wife. It goes without saying that the duty of explaining and interpreting their father's curious reactions in times of stress was hers as well. She was the children's primary source of comfort, tucking them into bed at night, kissing them on the forehead, and gently explaining that their father was a complicated man. She was often the voice of things he couldn't bring himself to say. Little Rosie picked up on that quick. The elder Roseanne was a supportive, nurturing woman with a passion for the arts. She encouraged her children to express themselves, particularly her middle child, who was always looking for a way to gain attention and stand out. 
Their lives were changed forever when she was overtaken by cancer. She died in March 1973 and was laid to rest on Rosie's 11th birthday. Where the situation was obviously awful for the kids, the loss was particularly hard on Edward. He retreated, becoming cold and distant, forcing the children to carry on for themselves. Rosie found refuge in her connection with her mother, exploring the things she loved when she was alive. She pursued art and theater, anything that included a stage or an audience. In 1979, she started touring the club circuit as a stand-up comedian, achieving success in 1984 on the television show Star Search. The national exposure led to more television work and numerous appearances on television shows like The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson and The Late Show with David Letterman. She then got a gig on VH1 hosting the series Stand Up Spotlight and joined their lineup of VJs. She was cast as Nell Harper's neighbor on Give Me a Break and co-starred with Melissa Gilbert on the sitcom Stand By Your Man, which premiered on Fox. The latter bombed, but that hardly seemed to matter. She wasn't that fond of Fox anyway. She also branched out into cinematic roles in movies, like A League of Their Own, Sleeping in Seattle, and Wide Awake. That last one was a no-brainer. If anyone is going to screw up an M. Night Shyamalan movie, it's going to be Shyamalan himself. So no pressure. She was also on Disney's shortlist for the role of Mary Sanderson in Hocus Pocus, but producers eventually cast Kathy Najimy instead. Rosie later claimed she turned down the part, refusing to play a frightening evil witch, but Disney isn't saying anything, so that's still up for debate. In the mid-1990s, she scored her own talk show, The Rosie O'Donnell Show. With kid-friendly jokes and a professed love for Tom Cruise, it was a playground to explore her many interests and the it show for all things entertainment. She also grew her family. She adopted her first child, Parker, in 1995. With her warm and affable demeanor, the show quickly became a hit, topping the pinnacle of daytime talk and earning a loyal fan base. She even beat Oprah Winfrey's ratings. Its success earned her multiple daytime Emmy Awards and the moniker The Queen of Nice, a title that would prove impossible to live up to. Following the Columbine shootings, a tragedy in which two disturbed teenagers launched a high school massacre never before seen, Rosie was deeply moved. Images of victims being hauled out on gurneys and cries of anguished parents affected her. It was like the troubles that haunted her father and much of her own childhood all over again. But she could do something about it. Now she had a stage. So she took to her talk show on April 19th to say, you're not allowed to own a gun. And if you own a gun, I think you should go to prison. Of course, this wasn't well received, particularly by people who hadn't shot up high schools and didn't like being lumped up in the same category with the two punks that did. It didn't take long for some of those disgruntled gun enthusiasts to dig back into the archives and respond with some of Rosier's earlier comments. Quote, I don't personally own a gun, but if you're qualified, licensed, and registered, I have no problem. Full disclosure. I'm not a fan of this kind of argumentation. It removes the ability to learn new information or change your mind. As if the things we said in the past were somehow etched in granite and carried down the mountain like the Ten Commandments, it stops the exchange of ideas instead of moving them forward. And I can tell you, 
If Moses had to carry everything I've ever walked back, he would have searched the desert for a chiropractor, not the promised land. But Rosie remained resolved. A month later, when she hosted Tom Selleck, she wanted to talk about bigger things than his new rom-com. She confronted him about his decision to do a public service announcement for the National Rifle Association, one in which he waived his usual fee and asked him about the group's position on assault weapons. Her questions caught him off guard. The closest thing to projectiles he was prepared to discuss were koosh balls. He muddled through, but it was tense. She wrapped up the segment by saying, If you feel insulted by my questions, I apologize because it was not a personal attack. It was meant to bring up a subject that is in the consciousness of so many today. While it was an important conversation and one that should continue until gun violence and school shootings are completely eradicated, the gun group and its scores of followers didn't take it lying down. For the last five years, Rosie had been a multi-million dollar spokesman for Kmart one of the largest volume firearms retailers in the United States. They brought this up, too. Of course, this is much like the last line of attack, only now her detractors questioned the validity of her concerns based on the fact that she didn't have access to a time machine and neglected to account for the possibility of a mass shooting when she signed on to sell bargain socks and underwear. When asked to comment, Rosie countered that her sponsor sold hunting rifles not handguns or assault weapons, and did so legally, a gun control method she supported. Still, she severed her contract with the retailer less than a year later. In 2002, she did a guest spot as a lesbian mom on the sitcom Will and Grace that sparked more speculation about her sexuality than laughs. How much of her performance was really acting, many wondered. She shrugged it off, saying it wasn't a big deal before confirming the rumors were true and sitting down for an interview with Diane Sawyer. By this time, if you've been listening to Frenemies in chronological order, and if you haven't, that's okay, I still love you, you may have been thinking to yourself, this is exactly the kind of story that's right up Diane's alley. And you'd be right. Rosie chose our Frenemy alumni for a reason. Her reputation for sensational interviews and hard-hitting investigative journalism. She knew her story suited both genres very well. A couple years earlier, she and her partner had taken in a foster child and announced their intentions to adopt her. Within months, the state of Florida removed her from their home, citing the usual garbage about how a child is better off without a family at all than a queer one. She saw the chance to give a face to both her orientation and the cause, saying, I don't think America knows what a gay parent looks like. I am the gay parent. She hoped that if she generated enough interest, she could coax the network into investigating Florida's ban on gay adoption. And it worked. ABC did an expose on the issue that was subsequently picked up by news outlets across the country. The ban was found unconstitutional in 2010, and then Governor Rick Scott signed it into law in 2015. In 2000, she partnered with the publishers of McCall's Magazine to rebrand it as Rosie. Intended to compete head-to-head with Oprah's magazine, O, Rosie saw stellar circulation before crashing spectacularly. The contract gave Rosie control over editorial process and staff, but the power to make or kill stories remained with the publisher. She quit the magazine when the two sides couldn't agree on a damned thing. The magazine folded and both sued the other for breach of contract, but not before Rosie was taken back to task for other things she said. 
During the trial, a former employee and breast cancer survivor testified Rosie told her that people who lie, quote, get sick and they get cancer. If they keep lying, they get it again. Ouch. Reeling from PR damage, if not from the horrible things she had said in retrospect, Rosie apologized the next day, claiming she never intended to hurt her feelings. Convinced that neither side deserved damages, the judge dismissed the case, leaving her free to explore other options, like The View. The View made its debut in 1997 and has maintained its hold as a cultural and political powerhouse ever since. Fans of the show squealed with delight when it was announced that Rosie would be joining the panel. She would be a breath of fresh, contentious air. Her ability to engage in passionate discussions, coupled with her confidence and candor, was expected to bring a dramatic, destabilizing quality to the group's status quo. And it did. The minute she heard Rosie was added to the roster, co-host Star Jones quit. While she could hold her own in a debate, sitting at the table with an emotionally hyperreactive honey badger wasn't her jam. Nor did it help that the new moderator publicly disputed her claims about achieving rapid weight loss through diet and exercise, theorizing that gastric bypass was probably more likely. Starr eventually admitted surgery had been involved, but did that matter? It was a private, personal decision, and one that was hers to decide if and when to share. As she settled into her role, tensions began to rise. Rosie quickly earned a reputation for going head-to-head with those who disagreed with her and going straight for their throats in the process. Her frequent clashes were ratings gold. Fans loved it, but it didn't endear her to her co-workers. It was hard to overlook the way she fought for her own rights and acceptance, but seldom gave either in return. And she kept arming her critics with more material. Once on the show, she used a series of ching-chongs to imitate Chinese newscasters. In response to viewer complaints, she said, quote, Some people have told me it's as bad as the N-word. I was like, really? I didn't know that. And added, there's a good chance I'll do something like that again, probably in the next week. Not on purpose, only because that's how my brain works. Prompting Time Magazine to call it a pseudo-apology. That same year, She criticized Donald Trump for making a publicity grab of his decision to reinstate Miss USA Tara Connor, who violated the pageant guidelines by drinking underage, saying, quote, left the first wife, had an affair, left the second wife, had an affair, but he's the moral compass for 20-year-olds in America. In response, Trump launched a vicious media attack, appearing on various shows in person or by phone, threatening to sue. Spoiler alert, he never did. But he did call her names, threatened to take away her partner Kelly, and claimed that Barbara Walters regretted ever hiring her. She also condemned many of the Bush administration's policies, including their explanation for the destruction of the World Trade Center, stating in quote, I do believe that's the first time in history that fire has ever melted steel. Okay, science alert. That's the way all steel and other materials are melted, with lots and lots of heat. Just a few weeks later, she shared some more thoughts. 655,000 Iraqi civilians dead. Who are the terrorists? If you were in Iraq and another country, the United States, the richest in the world, invaded your country and killed 655,000 of your citizens, 
What would you call us? Conservative commentators criticized her statements, accusing her of comparing American soldiers to terrorists. The following week, a heated discussion ensued, in part due to the public slobber knocking she continued to take from those still outraged by her statements, partly because of what she perceived as right-wing panelist Elizabeth Hasselbeck's unwillingness to stand up for her. On air, she badgered her. Do you believe I think our troops are terrorists? Elizabeth responded no, before throwing her back to the wolves, saying, defend your own insinuations. Her words cut deep. Rosie walked away feeling that she'd not only been humiliated and betrayed by a co-worker, but by a friend. Not only that, but the studio's cameras had recorded a split screen of the exchange, something that required advanced preparation. To Rosie, it meant only one thing. She was set up. They had deliberately egged her on to catch it on film, fuming over the way she was portrayed as a bully attacking innocent, pure Christian Elizabeth. She quit the show that day. Later, Rosie revealed that she'd been struggling with other things at the time as well. While their marriage had been legally dissolved years earlier among the thousands voided by the California Supreme Court, her longtime partner had moved out of their home, unable to take it anymore. But things at The View were great. Thanks to the dust-up and Rosie's continuing complaints of mistreatment, they enjoyed better ratings than ever, and they set about recruiting a new moderator, Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi was born Karen Elaine Johnson on November 13, 1955, to Emma Harris Johnson, a teacher and nurse, and Robert James Johnson Jr., a Baptist clergyman. Her father abandoned the family when she was young, forcing her mother to raise her and her brother in the public housing projects of New York City alone. Whoopi often describes her mother as stern, strong, and wise. While the situation she found herself and her children in was far from ideal, she refused to give in to difficulty. It was what it was, and that was all there was to it. Nor would she permit her children to let the situation get to them either. She knew that being poor and black would be enough of a challenge. They'd best get used to it and get to work. That determination, among other traits, would serve Whoopi well. Life in the projects was hard. The family frequently had to depend on public assistance and charitable groups for the children's education and enrichment. Whoopi participated in the local children's theater while she was in grade school and fell in love with performing and expressing herself. As she grew up, she supplemented her passion with movies and television. She became obsessed with the characters and plot twists. Through acting, anything was possible. She recalled the first time she saw Nichelle Nichols playing the role of Uhura on Star Trek. In a mixture of shock and awe, she exclaimed, Mama, there's a black lady on television and she ain't no maid. Seeing the iconic actress in the groundbreaking role spawned a lifelong love of the show. Eventually, she lobbied for and was cast in the role of Guinan on Star Trek The Next Generation, two Star Trek films, and the recent spin-off show, Picard. School was a different matter. With few options and no money for tuition, Whoopi and her brother attended parochial school. While these formative years would have been difficult for any poor child of color, she was further disadvantaged due to dyslexia. 
The often overlooked disability that jumbled letters and flipped numbers around made classwork almost impossible. In an environment where the teaching staff were usually armed with more rulers than compassion, she was frequently chastised for being dumb and lazy. After taking the abuse as long as she could, she dropped out of school at the age of 17 and became involved with drugs. She eventually got help and recovered, marrying her drug counselor and giving birth to the couple's daughter. After they divorced, she and her daughter moved to California to pursue her dream of acting. And she changed her name. She didn't want her gender to dictate what kind of artist she was any more than the color of her skin. So she adopted the stage name Whoopi, like the Whoopi cushion. Her last name, originating from, well, does it matter? One account suggests her mother thought Johnson didn't sound very actorish, but she didn't want her to go with cushion either. Even if you change the pronunciation, Kushan still sounded dumb. Others record her mother recommending her daughter come up with a name that sounded more Jewish. Whoopi told columnists in 2011, Goldberg is my name. It's part of my family, part of my heritage, just like being black. Adding, would you ask me that if I were white? I bet not. In case she hadn't made that point clear enough, researchers found that all of Whoopi's traceable ancestors were black, that she had no known German or Jewish ancestry, and that none of her ancestors were named Goldberg. Results of a DNA test revealed in the PBS documentary African American Lives traced part of her ancestry to the Bayote people of modern-day Guinea in West Africa. The show reported her great-great-grandparents had acquired property in northern Florida in 1873 and mentions they were among a very small number of Black people who became landowners through homesteading in the years following the Civil War. But all that notwithstanding, no one would have gone to these lengths if she was white, would they? So there's that. Her first big success came in 1983 and 84 with her one-woman show's Mom and the Spook Show. Her thought-provoking performances tackled a wide range of topics, including race, politics, and social issues. By being herself and speaking her mind, she had critics and film directors laughing in the aisles, eager for more. With this boost, she recorded and repackaged the act and took it to Broadway. From there, the show broadcast on HBO, and then won a Grammy for Best Comedy Recording in 1985, with Whoopi becoming the second female solo performer to ever receive the reward, and the first African-American woman to boot. Her shows caught the eye of Steven Spielberg, who gave her the lead role in his film The Color Purple. Her portrayal of a mistreated Black woman in the Deep South earned her a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress and an Academy Award nomination. And it opened a lot of doors. Between the 80s and 90s, she was one of the busiest actors in the business. Between her work on movies ranging from Ghost to the Sixter Act series, she was awarded an Oscar, her second Golden Globe, and a BAFTA Award. Nielsen ranked her as one of the most prolific film actors in the 1990s, with 29 films grossing $1.3 billion in the United States and Canada. And the salary she commanded for the sequel of Sister Act made her the highest-paid actress of the time. She also continued to break other barriers, refusing to let anyone define her as a one-trick pony. She continued to do stand-up and host the Academy Awards themselves. Four times! 
ChatGPT is quick to gush about her success in this area before reverting back to tales of Will Smith smacking Chris Rock. So I haven't been able to verify if she is really the only one to do this. But even if she wasn't the first Oscar award winner to go on to host, she's certainly on a very short list and deserving of more attention than Smith. Over the next two years, she became a spokeswoman for SlimFast and did a number of appearances, both behind the scenes and on stage. During a fundraiser for then-presidential candidate John Kerry in 2004, she drew controversy with risque commentary about his contender. Rather, she waved a bottle of wine, pointed to her crotch, and said, we should keep Bush where he belongs, not in the White House. When word reached corporate, SlimFast dropped her from their campaign. Still, it was small potatoes. Whoopi'd already proved she could do whatever she wanted. By 2007, she'd racked up an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony, making her one of 17 people distinguished for achieving the EGOT and the first black woman to do so. She'd also won a Drama Desk Award, a BAFTA, two American Comedy Awards, three People's Choice Awards, three Kids' Choice Awards, the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor, the center square on Hollywood Squares, and a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. She was perfect for the view. On September 4th, 2007, she took over as the new moderator and co-host. Her debut was a ratings yawn, scoring about a million fewer viewers than Rosie's debut in the chair, but the drop didn't last long. After sitting at the helm for a couple weeks, the show saw a 7% increase from the previous season. Viewers saw her as a trusted voice and a stable presence, providing a balanced perspective amidst the often passionate discussions. Not to say she hasn't caught flack for some of the things she said. On one of her first appearances on the table, she defended Michael Vick's participation in a dogfighting racket as the result of, quotes, cultural upbringing, something that was hotly debated as few supported the stance that electrocuting dogs was part of anyone's culture as much as it was a crime. Two years later, she opined that Roman Polanski's sexual attacks against a 13-year-old in 1977, ones in which he was later convicted, weren't rape-rape. She later walked this back, stating that she'd intended to distinguish between statutory rape and forcible rape, but it was still quite a height. In the following year, in response to comments made by Mel Gibson that might be considered racist, she caught more crap for defending him saying on air, I don't like what he did here, but I know Mel, and I know he's not a racist. Then there was an episode where she said she was a member of the National Rifle Association, an association her predecessor wouldn't have been thrilled about. According to Ramin Satode's book, Ladies Who Punch, The Explosive Inside Story of the View, ABC's executive vice president of daytime and syndication told the panel they decided to bring Rosie back. Barbara Walters had recently stepped down or was pushed aside, depending on whether you're listening to Ms. Barbara or the company's talking heads. And the network was eager to control the damage. They thought her re-edition would be just the thing. By all appearances, Rosie was pleased to be back and excited to work with the legendary performer and groundbreaking feminist. But to her dismay, they weren't the fast friends she'd hoped they'd be. And she picked up on a vibe from day one. Her very first day back, she noticed producers signaling Whoopi to call a commercial break. 
So she called it. It was a harmless accident. She thought Whoopi missed it. But she said Whoopi took it as a slight, set by what she assumed was Rosie swerving into her lane. Rosie tried to talk to her about it, but her attempts didn't get very far. For Rosie, it was a telling sign. She was only further concerned with the bonds and relationships that had formed in her absence, what Rosie perceived as cliques within the group. She wasn't a cliquish kind of girl, and the alliances between her peers made her feel isolated and even ganged up on. Things only grew more toxic when she called out Whoopi for those cringy comments about Polanski and rape rape. They brought her back because they needed her insight to save the show, and she gave it, both on camera and off. She thought Whoopi would understand and even appreciate it. Instead, she said the moderator gave her an angry letter. Rosie told reporters she wrote her back, saying, I'm sorry if that hurt your feelings. I have different feelings about it than you, and I stand up for what I believe. But I'll never bet against you, Whoopi Goldberg. Another event in the ever-intensifying conflict was the emergence of allegations against Bill Cosby for drugging and raping women. In a brave but still highly controversial move, given the sensitive nature of both the topic and discussion, Whoopi defended Cosby. Comparing the allegations to Paula Dean's potty mouth use of the N-word, she advised caution when jumping to conclusions, stating, Until you know it's true, it's an allegation. That's what it is. Again, Rosie saw it differently. She pushed back, stating the sheer number of accusers coming forward was reason enough to condemn him. The disagreement led to an intense argument on air. Off-camera, things weren't getting any better. According to Rosie, Whoopi frequently shut down her ideas and dismissed her contributions. It drove her nuts. She was there to speak her mind and to stand up for what was right. She wondered why Whoopi would shut her down like that. Did she really resent her so much? Convinced she was on Whoopi's bad side, from which there was no turning back, her relationships began to disintegrate off-camera as well. She vented her frustrations about Whoopi and others to guests, only further isolating her from the rest of the panel. And staffers noticed she appeared more on edge, if that could be possible. When even a good day on the job was overwhelming and emotionally taxing, Rosie made the decision to step down again to focus on her family and her health. Struggling with another failed marriage at the same time, it was just too much. On February 6, 2015, representatives confirmed she was leaving the show, her second attempt ending much like the first. In a statement made to The Hollywood Reporter, she said, My health got a little bit worse right before the holidays. My doctor was kind of concerned. I can't really fix my personal life right now, but I can fix my job. She couldn't remain friends with Whoopi after that. It was just too painful. While Rosie shared her negative experiences freely with anybody who listened, Whoopi saw things differently. She never saw the strife between them as rivalry at all. It was just a job. Whoopi was hired to do three things. Be herself offer opinions, and moderate. She did precisely that with all her on-camera interactions and with all her co-contributors. Rosie wasn't an exception. She wasn't even a standout. Just ask Megan McCain. She once told that girl flat out to stop talking on air. Sure, things got tense, but that didn't mean it affected her relationships. 
She was a professional and never allowed those conflicts to bother her once the camera was turned off. It was part of the job, and the idea that anyone would take it personally was absurd. If Rosie wanted to go down that road, it meant no never mind to her. While Rosie told reporters she wanted to avoid a public feud, her decision to share her experiences with the author of a tell-all book turned the Queen of Nice into the Queen of Contradiction. Still harboring a lot of pain from the experience, and more than a little hostility towards the woman she blamed for it, the comedian described her time on the show as the worst experience she'd ever had on live television. Satote quoted her as saying Whoopi was as mean as anyone had ever been to her on television. Worse than she'd been treated by Fox News. That was harsh. Satote approached Whoopi for an interview as well, but she turned him down. Just like she did every other journalist or public personality eager for her side of the story. When host Andy Cohen asked her for comment on an episode of Watch What Happens Live, she refused, stating she didn't like talking out of school. When Cohen pressed the subject, quoting Rosie's allegations, she remained unfazed, replying simply, that's okay. Rosie could say whatever she liked to whomever she liked, but she would keep her life off camera, private. When the book was released and the revelation of the rivalry was detailed in black and white, the cat was out of the bag and running all over town. The conflict became a regular subject of gossip and entertainment, particularly by those who made a brand of exaggerating controversies and perpetuating female stereotypes. People like Howard Stern. Fresh from writing a book and eager to promote it, he appeared on The View with that talking point in his back pocket. Maybe they weren't mud wrestlers, but slinging mud was the next best thing. He brought it up during his appearance, playfully teasing Whoopi about her feelings towards Rosie. She responded to his taunts by stating she didn't think about it. If he intended to get publicity by rattling her, he would be disappointed. But not completely out of options. He had Rosie on his show months later, and she was more than happy to repeat the tales, adding her co-host agreed her decision to leave was better for everyone. Undoubtedly aware Stern would minimize her pain into a comedic stereotype for ratings, she added that she had no desire to engage in a public feud with Whoopi. But she didn't exactly say no either, did she? And Stern did precisely that when he invited Whoopi to his show later that year. But no matter what he said, Whoopi didn't take the bait. Instead, she repeated her preference in keeping her personal relationships separate from her professional ones and denied any ill will towards Rosie or anyone else on The View. And it didn't really matter either way. Rosie saw things the way she saw them, and there was nothing Whoopi could do about it even if she wanted to. The aftermath, whether real or imagined, left a sense of distance and awkwardness between the women that, in many ways, has never been resolved. According to reports, the women hardly speak to each other anymore. They've encountered one another at events from time to time, but barely acknowledge one another and opt not to sit at the same table. Per her particular TMI style, Rosie mentioned bumping into Whoopi at a concert once and crossing paths occasionally when working on other projects. In interviews, of course. But with time and a notably cooler head, she has also stated she regrets having participated in the interview for the book and wished things had unfolded differently. Despite everything, both real and perceived, 
Rosie says she still has a lot of respect for the woman, even if they couldn't find a way to work together. Naturally, Whoopi's takeaway is more subdued. There will always be people who like or dislike each other, and she can only be herself. She continues to maintain she likes Rosie and has always liked her. And that's all anyone is likely to get out of her, including Howard Stern. This has been Frenemies. Thanks for listening. Frenemies is an original production of Toil and Trouble Media. Executive produced by Jennifer Beck. This episode was also written and performed by Jennifer Beck. I'm kind of a big deal. Additional production assistance was provided by Aaron Iris and David Beck. And our music was performed by Snowflake and Admiral Bob. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen and tell your friends. It helps us rise above the crap. And check out our website at toilandtroublemedia.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Threads. We're also on Patreon, and we have a YouTube channel if you want even more Toil and Trouble Media in your life. I lost control of those outlets a long time ago, so you never know what you're going to find. They're kind of like herding cats. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.